If you're looking for ways to prioritize your health and fitness, run more efficiently, understand food, and somehow fit it all into a fun and family-centered life, you're in the right place. This is the Real Life Runners Podcast, and we're your hosts, Kevin and Angie Brown. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Now let's get running. Thank you so much for joining us today on episode number 36 of the Real Life Runners podcast. Today we are talking about a topic that all parents know something about, and that is <laughs> that is fatigue during life, but specifically during running. Yes. Why am I so tired? That's kind of, that's the point of the episode. Right. I know that I asked myself this question this week and I'm like, gosh, I'm feeling so tired. Why am I so tired? And then I started thinking about it and I was like, well, (laughs) is, is it the laundry, the visitors that we had in from out of town, the major life events that have been happening? There's been so much going on in our life these last couple weeks, this last month, really, it has just been insane. No wonder I'm tired. Yeah. I mean, whether it's, physical stress from from a hard workout or all of the other stress in your life from lack of sleep to putting food into your body that you're not used to because it's a celebration and there's all sorts of different stressors on the body. They're all stressed and they all eventually lead to fatigue. Yeah, I think that definitely affected me this week too. The extra desserts that I was consuming because that lemon cake I made was delicious and there was leftovers. Yeah, because it was a party. Yeah, and then there was the extra wine that I was consuming. Because it was a party. Well, and it was a week. Well, yeah, I mean... (laughs) And your parents were here, too. My parents were here, so it was like... It, it wasn't just one party. It was a whole like celebratory week because right. there were people in town. Yeah. We had a lot of visitors. And so there was excess consumption going on. Sure. We'll go with that. Food and drinks. Let's go get my glass for, for this episode. It'll Perfect. Make it, make it a little bit more relaxed. There you go. All right. So let's talk about fatigue, um, specifically during running. So fatigue during running, there are is kind of like the old school way of thinking about why we get tired. And what is that? Well, there's two major old school thoughts, and one is we basically run out of gas Right, is one of them. Right, which is relating to our topic somewhat of last week, of fu- food as fuel. So at some point during your run, you just run out of fuel. That's one of the yeah. old ways of thinking. You can kind of look at it. It, it makes sense. Well, and it, it's definitely true. And it is. It's it's a hundred percent true. Like right. all of these are are true. There's just there's a newer way of looking at well, it. Well, it's just part of the story. Yes. That, I think that's the the way it is. It, it's yes, you can definitely run out of fuel you, if you don't fuel yourself properly for your runs or for your races. You're gonna run out of fuel and you're gonna get tired and and run out of energy. That's definitely a component. There's just a lot more to it than that. Right. And I mean, without getting too far into it, basically the the body has various systems where it can burn different fuel sources and and you get energy out of it. And as one fuel source runs low, the body essentially has to switch over and try and use another fuel source. And that switching process and revving the other one up 
it, it's not the most efficient process and your body naturally slows down in the process. It's not exactly how it works, but that was, that was the theory for a long time is your body tries step A and when it runs out of gas, then it moves to step B and switching from A to B makes you slow down. That's a simplified version of it, but it's also relates to running as an aerobic exercise. So when you burn fuel aerobically, you need oxygen present in order to do that. And as we get tired and as, as our lungs get tired and our muscles get tired, we become less efficient at extracting that oxygen out of the air. And so there's less oxygen available, which then slows down that whole energy conversion process. And that then leads to less fuel in the body too. Yeah. Don't say VO2 max because I want to do a whole episode just on that. We're not talking about that today. <laughs> Um, all right. So the other like old school way of looking at it is that there's essentially junk inside of your body that builds up. Oh, the lactic acid. Oh, lactic acid. Everybody... Every, I mean, for years people were like, well, you got to be careful because the lactic acid builds up. It and causes, you flush it out. It causes the burn in the body. Right. And, and it turns out that's, uh, that's completely wrong. Right. Not and, true. Uh, and the PE coaches that are still out there screaming lactic acid, or as I, uh, as I was running a workout this week around the football coaches who were screaming that the team had to do various things to get rid of the lactic acid. Were they really saying that? 100%. (laughs) Point of order, you're wrong. But I just... (laughs) Yeah, maybe not. Maybe don't say that to the like six foot five, 300 pound... No, that, that was not the head coach. The head coach was <laughs> off to the side. This was the assistant coach who's in charge of like their conditioning. Yeah. And he's, he's like, he's an older guy and he, his main strength as a coach is that he just gets out there and has this like really grumbly voice and just screams at the kids nonstop from the start to the end of practice. Mm. He is, he is your traditional stereotypical old school football coach mm. who just screams for the whole practice. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's intense. Okay. <laughs> so turns out that lactic acid theory isn't really true. It's part of the truth. But people think of lactic acid as building up in the muscles and that's causing this burning sensation. And that's not exactly accurate. So tell us exactly what happens with that. Well, so it's a little bit different that lactic acid actually can be used as a fuel for other energy systems in the body. Right. So it is a byproduct of conversion. Totally. Energy conversion. Like the, there is an energy pathway in your body that produces lactic acid. Right. But then the lactic acid gets shuttled back into the system. Yes. And Im- almost immediately converts into free floating hydrogen and lactate. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of lowers your pH and that kind what of What the heck helps. is pH? Well, okay. It, it makes the body more... It makes more... the body more acidic. Thank you. So it, because there's extra hydrogen inside of the blood and in your muscles, it makes your body more acidic and that inhibits some muscle activity. Okay. Because your body basically wants to be at a very neutral pH in there is a lot of talk about acidity and alkalinity. I'm sure if you guys have listened to health, other health stuff or read health articles, people always talk about wanting to alkalize the body and bring eating the vegetables to help decrease the acidity in the body. Because if the body's too acidic, then your systems just don't work properly. Right. And specifically in exercise, if there's too much acidity, there's a lack of production of different enzymes, and the enzymes are responsible for running the different energy pathways. Right. So if you get too acidic, you don't have the enzymes to even try to run the energy pathways, and so your body doesn't get energy. Therefore, it shuts down. Okay, so... That's the thought. Yeah. 
And then two of the other byproducts that kind of come out of all of this are increased potassium and calcium levels. And what does that mean for us as runners? Uh, Basically, your muscles can't contract as hard or as quickly as you want them to. Because potassium and calcium are both needed for muscle contraction. Right. I mean, it it gets a little involved in scientific but the the potassium has to move from one side of the cell to the other, and the calcium helps it. And basically, you get this buildup, and the muscles don't contract right. Right. So these older models of fatigue basically just talk about the physical changes in the body, that you're becoming more acidic or you're not having enough calcium or potassium, you're not having enough oxygen to fuel you, you're running out of fuel, there's all this lactic acid. It's all of the physiological processes in the body. Because they were the easiest to measure. As scientific exercise study came into existence and started becoming a thing, scientists just started looking for some sort of marker to measure. Right. And whatever was the easiest thing to measure, they'd be like, okay, well, people exercise and look, they get increased levels of of whatever it was, and they called that a marker for fatigue. Right. And turns out it's not that simple, is it? Well, no, because both of those things completely discount this super important aspect of the human body, Mm -hmm. which would be the brain. Yes, and we all know (laughs) that our mental state totally affects the way that we feel physically, and it can totally affect how good a run is or how bad a run is. 100%. If you don't have the right mind frame at the start of even an easy run, that run just becomes, you know, mile after mile of torture, basically. So um, in an effort to try and figure out like where this pain comes from and how to deal with it and stuff, like I've been reading a book. It's a great book. Steve Magnus's The Science of Running. And in it, he references this paper, which I I just love the name of it. It's Tim Noakes. It's from uh, 2012. The, the paper was called Fatigue is a Brain-Derived Emotion. Like, it, just thinking of fatigue as an emotion, not as, oh, wow, my legs hurt, but think of it as the same level as happy and sad is a very interesting way to just rearrange your whole thought on running. Yeah, that is definitely interesting. And I think it's very true, too, because the brain essentially is the part of our body that interprets all the information that we receive. So we're receiving all this information as far as when we're running, how our body is feeling, the environment around us. And the brain takes all of that and interprets it and lets us know if we're feeling great that day or if we're not feeling great that day. Exactly. And the the phrase that, that comes up in the book is the brain is essentially the central governor. And it says the brain takes in all this information and then it has to decide what to do with it. Mm -hmm. So you've got tons of information coming in when you you go out and run and the brain is trying to figure out, okay, I want to be in in homeostasis. I want to be in, in my comfort zone. Right. And as a runner, you try and push yourself Outside of your comfort zone. Right. And the brain's job is basically to protect us and to keep us alive. That's essentially all it wants to do. It just wants us to be comfortable all the time. And keep us alive. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, fatigue is not not necessarily a bad thing. The fatigue is simply your brain saying, hey, what you're doing right now is not a great plan because it hurts. Right, but the brain, it, part of its job is to anticipate that danger and to slow us down before we reach our breaking point. Yeah, that's, that's why it's really interesting. They've done all sorts of studies where they told people, you know, this is going to be, they do a lot of these studies on cyclists and they tell them it's going to be yeah. like a, a 50 kilometer bike ride, but I want you to push as hard as possible. And then they stop them after 10 kilometers. I think that this, that same study was referenced in the other book that I read with the Matt Fitzgerald book. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, how bad do you want it? It's a great study because the brain already starts making adjustments way before it needs to. Right. It's not like it, it says, oh wait, you're completely out of gas. We need to shut it down now. It says, ooh, you're starting to get low on gas. We should start slowing down and conserving this. Well, and it depends on when you get that feeling too, because yes. if you start to get that feeling early on in a race, that's going to be a lot harder than if you get that feeling at the end of the race and you know that you only have a short distance to go. You're going to be able to push through that a lot better than if you start to get that same feeling at the beginning of the race. Completely. you know, And, and we'll get a little bit more detailed into that as, as we keep going here. But um, what I wanted to cover a little bit was all of the different things that are coming into the brain. Some of them are really what we just referenced is the brain's checking your fuel levels. The brain's checking what kind of byproducts are building up inside of it. But it's also, it's checking your core temperature. It's checking your current emotions. But then it's checking external things as well. It's, it's looking at the stopwatch and saying, okay, this is the pace that I'm currently running. It's calculating how far left do you have on your run? How much left do you have in this race? It's, it's interpreting, are there other people around you that you're running against? Are there or other people around with. you that you're running with? Yeah. Is there an audience that's cheering for you? Are there simply people watching that you're trying to impress? It's taking all of that information in and then deciding what it wants to do with it. And if it decides, well, I really need to slow it down, it starts putting pain onto your body so that you naturally slow down. Right, because what is what is pain? Pain is, to <laughs> is a total perception. Completely. Right. Because if, if you want to block pain out, if your motivation is high enough, you just kind of pretend that pain isn't there anymore. Right. And it essentially goes away. Yeah. And there's different pain tolerance levels. I love when my patients come in and they say, well, you know, I have a really hard, high tolerance for pain. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Like I had a woman come in last week and, and tell me that. And, and I said, well, how much pain are you having right now? And she's like, I'm a 10 out of 10. And I said, well, you wouldn't be sitting here in front of me <laughs> if it was a 10 out of 10 with a smile on your face. And she's like, well, no, because anyone else would be at a 15 or a 20. I said, okay, okay. But okay. What I want you to do for me right now is think about the absolute worst pain you've ever had in your life. That is a 10 out of 10. How are you today as compared to that pain? Well, I'm a 10. I'm a 10 out of 10. I said, so this is the absolute worst pain you've ever had in your life. Well, no. I said, okay, well, how are you today compared to that? And she was like, oh, I'm, I'm like an eight. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Now, now we're getting somewhere here. <laughs> she was a three, totally yeah. a three. <laughs> I doubt that, but 
But anyway, I, I think it's hard to walk into the room with a smile on your face and be anything that's that's that close to. 10. She didn't really have a smile on her face. I kind of made that part. <laughs> she up. skipped into the room and announced that she was a ten out of ten. I mean, this lady has had some crazy stuff go on, but anyway. But yeah, let's I mean, move on. Everyone's pain tolerance is is a little different, and part of it depends. Not even just on person to person, but on day to day right? of what else is going on. I mean, it's how we started this episode. Are there other stresses currently going on in your life? Because your ability to deal with the the physical symptoms coming to your brain of this is built up in the body and core temperatures rising and my pH is is lowering and there's all these things coming in. Your brain, and all of that's unconscious too. Oh yeah, it's not like you're thinking about it. Right. Like your brain is just receiving all this information constantly and has to figure out what to do with it. If you're already tired before that run starts, it's it's going to say, okay, we're tired, we're slowing down, it's nap time. Right. Like, it's not going to want to push through it. But if you put y- yourself in that exact same setting, and now you throw a racing singlet on, and it's the Olympic trials, it's like, whoa, I'm pushing to a whole new level. Mm-hmm. And it happens. Because it means more. Because it means more. Right. It's taking all that external, those external factors that are coming in, and telling you, it doesn't matter how much pain you're in today, you're going to keep going. Yeah. I mean, this is, I see this all the time as a coach. It's the difference between the kid who can crush it in practice and the kid who has solid workouts throughout the whole season. But as soon as they put on racing shoes and a number on their chest, it's a whole nother ball game. Well, that's what you were saying about Nick Simmons. Wasn't, yes. he, wasn't he talking about that? Yeah. Nick Simmons strongly proclaims that he, he's what, you know, people call he's a gamer. Like he shows up when they fire the starting gun, mm-hmm. but in practice, people could train with him, no problem. They'd be with him every day of the week, month after month after month, and then they'd go into a race with him, and he would just wreck them. And they're like, "Nick, what are you doing?" He goes, "Well, it matters more right now." Mm-hmm. He found the way to handle it when it mattered, and then he, he could go to a different place. Yes. Whereas everybody else was already going to that place in practice. He could get close in practice, but he never put himself all the way, you know, quote unquote, into the well. Like he never had to go all the way in so that he could mentally still go an extra place when it came to race time. Right. And I think that there is something to be said about both putting yourself in that space in practice and then maybe reserving that for the race. Maybe it's it's good to do both, probably. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way that he ran is almost impossible for most people to mm-hmm. suggest, I've never tried going this hard, but when it's a race, I bet I've got it. Yeah. Like, okay, but you might want to check before it's an actual a race. A lot of people would need some training in that. But you can't. You can't train that way week in and week out because no. you you just can't come back. Like pushing yourself physically and mentally that far takes a while to recover. Yeah, for sure. Like you can physically come back and run the next day, but you can't dig that deep for a while. Right, and I think that's why recovery runs and giving yourself recovery time is so important. The body needs recovery physically. Your muscles need time to recover, but Sometimes people discount the mental recovery that's also necessary after you have a hard race. I mean, from from so many levels, just from being able to to make your brain want to work that hard, and there's there's actual like neurological pathways that need to be firing in order to make your muscles actually move correctly. Mm-hmm. So both of them come in. 
Um, one of the other points I wanted to bring up out of the, uh, out of the book I'm reading is, is called, um, the hazard score. And it was from a, a researcher named, uh, De Koenig who came up with this idea that it's related to what's called your rating of perceived exertion. But then it also takes into account how far do you have left in your race? So it was like your current rating of perceived exertion times the fraction of the race left. So if you're feeling really tired and you have almost all of the race left, it's a huge hazard score. Right. But if you're feeling really tired and you have 10 steps to the finish line, it doesn't matter because that distance is so short. So your hazard score is, is really pretty low. Right. Because you don't have as far to go. So you're able to push yourself into that danger zone without needing to stop. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's scientists trying to somehow put in an, an equation, something systematic onto studying the brain, which is such this like nebulous concept. And it's really hard to put in there, but scientists want hard and fast numbers. And so they came up with this way of, of sort of scoring it and putting a numerical value onto it. And it's, it kind of comes with, well, if you've got too much of the race left, your body is going to not want to push that hard because it's, it, it sees it as too great of a hazard and your body just wants to protect itself. Yeah. This is how kicking happens in races. Okay. So if you've got a lot of race left, it's almost impossible to throw a surge in. Like people don't want to, if you're already feeling tired, you don't want to kind of push it knowing that you still have, you know, a few miles left or, you know, you don't see often big moves in a marathon at mile four. Right. And that's one thing I've always been amazed about you when we talk about after your races and we kind of go through a recap and, and you tell me, oh, after mile one, I decided to throw in a surge to try to lose the competitor that I was racing against. And I just think to myself, how did he put in a surge at mile one, knowing he still had however many miles left to go, depending on how long the race is? Because <laughs> as long as you know that the surge is coming, you also know when the surge is ending. Okay. Whereas your competitor has no idea. They but what if the competitor goes with you? Then, then do you adjust when that surge ends? Completely. Okay. Like if, if so, you don't always know. No, you you hope you know. You hope that you're in control and that throwing a surge at the mile puts you in the advantage. But it's totally possible that you go for it, you give it a shot, and that person goes right with you, and they're having a better day. And then you have to stick with it, or do you still pull back? You, you kind of you still almost have to pull back. You kind of hope that they pull back first so that you're still in control. Either way, you're pushing harder than you want to. Right, right. So basically, to just sum up what we said so far, the old school way of thinking says that fatigue is purely physiological, right? When your body gets tired, there's all these physiological processes that goes on, and that's what causes fatigue. But these newer ways of thinking really talk more about how much control our brain has over the whole process and how it's all about the way that we perceive that fatigue, what perceive those body changes and what our brain decides to do with them and whether or not our brain decides to slow us down and and make us think that it's time for us to pull back or if it's okay for us to continue to push push forward. And I mean that's that's running. Running is taking all these outside cues and figure out what do I still want to do and the level of motivation comes in as a huge 
contributing factor to, to how fast you're going to keep running. Okay. So what do we do about it? <laughs> well, there's a few different things and there's actually some research studies on this one, which are, um, really mean studies. The one that, that struck me as almost comical is they had, um, they had people come in and perform a strength routine where they had to do like one bench press at absolute maximum. One rep max. One rep max. One RM. Okay. So pretend that the guy could do 200 pounds. Mm -hmm. Then they left and they came in the next day or I can't remember the timeline on it. They came in and they said, okay, one rep max, but they had changed the weights on them. They didn't look the same. They brought in a new set of weights and the new set of weights were labeled incorrectly. Mm -hmm. And so, and they were all labeled 20 pounds off. Okay. So they set the thing up and you look at the numbers and it says you're still lifting 200 pounds, but it was actually 220. And suddenly that guy who could barely get up 200 pounds lifted 220 mm -hmm. because the bar said he was still only lifting 200. Mm -hmm. His brain told him, I've done 200. I can do 200 again. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly he was going faster. Okay. So you kind of do the, the running workout comparison to this and you gotta, you gotta pick and choose your athletes and pick and choose your times to do this. Mm -hmm. But blind workouts are the answer to it. Okay. You take the watch off the runners and you tell them you're hitting quarter repeats and you're hitting them in, let's say you're trying to get somebody to break six minutes in the mile. So they should be able to regularly hit quarter repeats at like 86, 87. Mm -hmm. If they come through at 90 you still tell them that it's 86. Okay. And then they hit the next one. It, you still tell them that it's 86. And so they think, okay, this is how I feel at 86. Mm -hmm. So when they get into a race and that's the pace that they're actually hitting and they, or. But how do you, how do they actually hit that pace? If they're actually running 90 during practice, they don't really know what 86 feels like then. It's a mental thing. When you get into the race by, if they don't think that they can do a workout. If they do the workout and they actually just hit 90 second repeats all the way through right. into a race, they're like, well, there's no way I can put four of those back to back to back to back mm -hmm. because I was getting rest in my workout. As the coach, if you're tricky with this and don't, you can't do it all the time because then your athletes don't pay attention to any numbers you're throwing at and they them. they don't trust you. They, yeah, there's no trust. But if you do it just right, you'd be like, okay, that was, that was 86. And so when they get into a race... And they're just, they're with a group. They don't panic when they're suddenly hitting 86s and they can come through and hit these times. Okay. They've, it's, it's happened. There's a lot of like anecdotal stories. I've heard various podcasts of people telling stories of when they PR'd because the clock at the finish line was set wrong. And so it said they were going slower than they actually were. Hmm. And they're like, well, I, I got to be going faster than that. The I, I, I can run faster than the clock is saying. And so they picked it up and they ended up P PRing by like eight seconds because the clock was off. Interesting. Like if your brain thinks that you can do something, it's going to push harder to get you there. So that's why building in some workouts that just train the mental strength is very important. Yeah. The mental strength is a huge aspect of this. And the, the watch free knowing your effort levels and knowing what they feel like, that's the other side. Mm -hmm. Like having, having the information, making sure that it is in fact honest and accurate and knowing, okay, this is what my body feels like at eight minute pace, at seven minute pace, like knowing what that feels like. But that can vary so much day to day. I know that it's, it's, so instead of looking at it as a hard, fast number, look at it as this is the range of paces that feel like my 5k effort. Okay. 
it's it's knowing what what that effort feels like so mm-hmm. that you can go to that place. All right, so to kind of try and bring it all together, everything that we've come up with, the old school thoughts of, of fueling correctly or the byproduct buildup and the newer thoughts of how the brain interprets all of it, they're all right. It's a combination of all of them that need to all be trained in order to get the best response possible from your body. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons that people say in order to be a good runner or a strong runner, you need to continue to run more miles because you get not only the physical adaptations, but also those mental adaptations from just running and time on the road and miles on your legs and not a lot of things can substitute for that. No. I mean, you can't just go in there and and visualize being a better runner. Like that that definitely helps the mental aspect, but you need the physical training. Just because you want to do something really hard doesn't mean that you you're going to be able to go out there and match somebody who's been training for the last decade. Right, like, and you need workouts that are hard enough that you're forced to mentally overcome that level of pain and continue to push forward. Exactly. So that you know that once you enter a race situation, you're able to do it there too. Right. Cause you've, you've put yourself in that place. You've come up with some strategies, you know how to block out the pain and, and get through. Okay. So I think that about wraps it up for today. Hopefully you guys found that helpful. Just learning about fatigue and, the body and how mental it all is. So we have a couple things we wanted to mention now. Number one, if you are interested in any of our coaching programs, head on over to our website at realliferunners.com to check those out. Also, we have been trying to do some more stuff on social media lately. So if you're on Instagram, check us out at realliferunners and use the hashtag. When you post your runs, use the hashtag realliferunners or the hashtag I am a real life runner so that we can find you because I'm going to be checking those. And if you guys use those hashtags, it'll be way easier for me to find your posts so that I can say hello. Please feel free to say hello on any of our posts. We would love to talk to you guys a little bit more and get to know a little bit more about you as our listeners and as fellow real-life runners that are trying to fit running and health into our crazy, hectic lives. So check us out on Instagram or Facebook. And like I said, if you want any of the coaching information, you can check out the website. Thank you guys so much for joining us today and spending this time with us. We hope that you have a great week and we'll talk to you next week.